Misfits, welcome to the Misfit Heroes podcast. My name is Chris, and together we are going on a journey. Now, back in the day, Misfits, I used to watch this show called Scared Straight. It was about rough and tumble kids and teenagers that got sent to prisons to live with inmates for a week to try and humble them and make them change their rude boy ways. And as a viewer, that show often came across as comical and humorous, and you got the sense of reform that these children went through when they were faced with the adversity of prison. Heck, doesn't everyone remember the Catch Me Outside girl from Dr. Phil? But what if you were the kid on one of those shows? There's got to be some things that a TV crew just can't show on television, right? Well, Misfits, let me introduce you to what is called the Trouble Teen Industry, or TTI for short. These boot camp style training camps where youths are sent into the wilderness and legally kidnapped from their parents in the middle of the night in an attempt to scare them into changing their ways. It is estimated that between 120,000 to 200,000 young people reside in some type of group home, residential treatment centers, boot camps, or even correctional facilities. And while the exact number of private placements are unknown, Estimates are that more than 50,000 of those youths were placed privately by their parents. And it's a big business. An estimated $23 billion of annual public funds to purportedly treat the behavioral and psychological needs of vulnerable youth is involved. One such for-profit facility, Sequel, has an annual revenue that regularly tops $200 million. And as of 2017, 90% of their revenue came from Medicaid, Medicare, and approximately 500 additional federal, state, and local programs. My guest tonight has experienced that life firsthand for nearly two years as a teenager. She endured a litmus test of intentional adversity, including months of hiking, camping, and hours of what is being deemed social control therapy. And now, she wants to share that first-hand account with the world to hopefully make parents rethink the impacts on their children. Misfits, buckle up. This is a wild story. Please welcome my new friend, Beetle. Playing the Misfit Heroes podcast. All right. Well, Beetle, welcome to the podcast. I am just very excited to talk to you. You have a story that is just mind-boggling to me. You've got so much going on and you've been through a lot and I'm excited that I gets to share it with the world. So thank you very much for coming on the podcast. How are you doing this afternoon? Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm doing pretty good. You know, I have a three-year-old, so just running ragged all the time. <laughs> yeah, no worries. I understand. I got a three-year-old as well and I know exactly what that's like. <laughs> yeah, they're the best, but they're also the worst. <laughs> oh, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about what you've experienced just right from the start. When I was growing up, we had these shows like Scared Straight, or you would watch like Dr. Phil sometimes, and they were about these kids that were maybe not acting the way their parents wanted them to, and sometimes they got sent away to like prison to like see the bad side of what could end up in their life or something like that. What I feel like is that you went through something like that just on the most extreme steroids level ever. I mean, can you explain briefly, like what, what is the troubled teen industry? And like, what, what was that like? So firstly, I think it's funny that you mentioned Dr. Phil, because the wilderness, I pro- wilderness program I went to is actually endorsed by Dr. Phil. He sent kids oh. there on his show and everything. Um, uh-huh. But the troubled teen industry is basically a multi-billion dollar industry that expands throughout the entire United States. States 
sorry, I'm nervous, <laughs> the entire United States um, that is made up of alternative therapies like wilderness therapy programs and residential treatment centers. Um, they are basically programs that on the surface are designed to be like intensive therapies, like wilderness therapy that I was in is designed to separate you from all the noise and just like toxicity of your environment and get you back in touch with nature and talk to a therapist. And like, ideally, that sounds perfect. Um, but on the surface, they just end up cutting corners and it results in a lot of abusive practices and injuries and even deaths. So um, in my experience, I went to Wingate Wilderness in 2017, October of 2017, and was there for three months. Um, during my time there, we were denied um, things like showers, um, clean drinking water. We were forced to hike between two and 12 miles every day. And we're told that if we didn't, um, we would just be starved and denied food and water. Um, we were given adult men's gear. Keep in mind, we were all teenagers, a lot of us with eating disorders who were pretty small. Um, so they did not fit and often caused injuries like mine cracked my ribs. There was another kid in my camp who um, cracked her collarbone because of it. Um, and they often broke and we'd have to repair them ourselves. Um, and they also made us climb a mountain range in the Grand Staircase Escalante called the White Cliffs. Um, we had to scale up the side of it uh, in winter with no training, no safety gear or anything like that with staff who had never done it before. My God. Wow. Well, that's, I mean, that's just, uh, that's intense to say the yeah. least. <laughs> it's really intense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't imagine, you know, I want to go deeper into your experience as a whole, but before we get into that, let's, let's sort of take things back a little bit. So when you were a kid, let's explain what your situation was like growing up. I mean, what was your family like? Were they religious? Like, where are you from? Like, tell me, tell me a little bit of your backstory a little bit before any of this started happening. I am actually, or I was a born and raised cradle Catholic. Both of my parents were Catholic. I and spent 10 years in a private Catholic school with like nuns as teachers and, and church attached and everything. And I had two older sisters. And overall, it's not like my family was outwardly abusive. My sisters were both five to seven years older than me. So they were just old enough that by the time I really started becoming like my own person, they had their own friends and were in school and all of that type of stuff. Um, and my parents had just kind of gotten to a point after raising my sisters that they were just kind of done being parents and they were super over it. So they weren't outwardly abusive. They were just inattentive. Yeah. And eventually, after I turned 13, my parents did separate. Um, they didn't get a divorce yet, but it was a very messy separation that resulted in my dad just kind of checking out of the picture for a little bit and my mom going into a really bad depressive episode that lasted for years um, that made it so she didn't really leave a room at all past going to work and like watching TV and didn't really interact with me a whole lot past me trying to like make sure she took her meds and stuff like that. Um, so I was kind of just left to raise myself 
And also when I turned 13, it was like my sisters both moved out at the same time. So it was a completely empty house. I ended up being sexually assaulted by a family friend that same year. And it was just, it completely tanked my mental health. And I really started struggling with depression and anxiety. I started self-harming. I attempted suicide multiple times. And after getting into high school, I was in multiple abusive relationships that were physically and emotionally abusive. They were just, it, it was just a lot for a teenager to be handling all at once. And I also had come out as a lesbian at the time and was dating only women in a small conservative rural area. So it was just one thing on top of another. And my parents really only focused on the surface issues. They focused on me misbehaving and not the reasons why I was misbehaving and just kind of viewed it as just, oh, I'm acting out because I'm just an out of control teenager and not because like I did genuinely mean someone who I trusted who I could talk to about that type of stuff, you know? Yeah. It wasn't until after my last suicide attempt when I was 16 that landed me in the ICU for a little bit. Um, that my parents really kind of started to pay more attention to me and they took it from being almost completely inattentive to like helicopter parent on steroids. They ended up pulling me out of school, um, making me tutor myself with online classes after moving me out to my dad's farm to be completely isolated. I wasn't allowed to go into um, my hometown where my mother lived, even to see my mother or go to Walmart or anything. I had my phone and laptop and everything taken away. So I was just completely isolated and by myself. And eventually it got to such an extreme that I ended up telling my parents that if they didn't like find a middle ground and fix this type of thing, that I was going to be emancipating myself and moving out. And it was actually within about a month of that conversation that I was legally kidnapped. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that, that term in itself is, is sort of just horrifying to me, but, (laughs) but I mean, so were you like, was there a lot of communication with your parents? I mean, was, was there a back and forth or was it really sort of like a golden hammer, like this, do what I say or else? (laughs) So Once my parents kind of flipped that switch and realized that they kind of had slacked off a little bit too much, um, it went from kind of just completely raising myself to golden hammer, you have to do what I say, and if you don't, it's a big problem. And there wasn't really any communication about it. There was no asking what my needs was or even why I was acting out the way that I was. I can totally admit, looking back on it, I made a lot of mistakes. In trying to get out of that situation, I ended up lying to my parents a lot. And I was just making a lot of poor decisions and stuff like that because I was a teenager. I feel like that's kind of a teenager's job to do. 100%. And so they were just kind of at a point where they felt that they were like at the end of their rope because they were refusing to just communicate with me and just decided that some stranger that I had never met before was going to know what was best when it came to treating me. 
And so they heard from my therapist about these wilderness programs and ended up getting in touch with, I believe, an education consultant who guided them from there. What you were talking about, about your your experiences as a teenager and how all teenagers act like this, I feel like, honestly, that is 100% correct. I, I think that mm-hmm. it seems like all teenagers rebel and act out a little bit. But, you know, what what were your troubles as a troubled teen? Like, I mean, was it what, like, I'm thinking of like, catch me outside girl and Dr. Phil, like we were talking about <laughs> earlier, like, like, you yeah. know what I mean? Like, like, I mean, were you, how, how, what level was it at for them to want to send it to, you know? My main behaviors that my parents had an issue with were um, my ADHD, which was like completely uncontrolled. I was on ineffective meds that just made me have worse mood swings. So I had very, very little to no executive function. I was very messy and they just viewed it as me being lazy. I couldn't keep up in school and really struggled with turning in assignments. And again, they just viewed it as me being lazy. And because of the anxiety that would come with how much I was struggling in school and like dealing with bullies and stuff. Um, It just made it so I started ditching classes. Um, And skipping school was another one. I really struggled with self-harm. And there was, of course, sorry, the suicide attempts that um, contributed to it. And the lying were their main ones. Um, Also asking them later, they said that my abusive relationships were a contributing factor. But at the time that I was taken, I had cut those people off for a few months. So I don't know how true that is. Yeah. But also the emancipation really was, or me threatening to emancipate myself was their tipping point. That was just, yeah, it was just enough for them. In all honesty, I mean, in the moment, I'm sure those things to any parent are probably like red flag, red flag, red flag. You know what I mean? But Mm -hmm. looking back on it, it really it really doesn't seem that bad. And I wonder how many parents actually, um, you know, how many parents think of that as an option? Because when you're watching one of these shows on TV, and I hate to keep bringing it back to the show, but it's just what's (laughs) Um, when you're watching something like that, it seems like, oh yeah, you know, well that obviously it's going to go out and fix them. But what you're telling me is that they go out there and you're living like, you know, you're roughing it on an extreme level. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about your experience with that. So, um, can you give me like a play by play of the events, like leading up to your parents sort of signing off on sending you away? Did they talk to you about it at all or? No. I was not told at all. I had actually had another conversation with my parents about a week before I was taken where they sat me down and said, okay, we've thought about you moving out and not living with us anymore. And we've agreed to let you do that. And in my mind, I was thinking that they were actually like going to be letting me move out. Um, yeah, get an apartment. Right? That was not, yeah, they, uh, that was not what they had in mind. Um, well, I actually had no idea what I was even going to at all until I was already in Utah in the process of being handed over to my program staff. Wow, that's insane. So how did the actual kidnapping happen? I mean, was it like, I mean, I've I've seen a video. It said it was like two o'clock in the morning, but like, can you walk me through like the actual night of how it happened? Yes. I remember majority of it very vividly. I was woken up 
um, at about 2.07 a.m. to my dad turning on my light and telling me that it was time to leave. Um, and when I, I remember rolling over and looking at him and immediately thinking that he was trying to get me up for school and like starting to come up with excuses why I, sh- I should be allowed to stay home. Um, until there was a woman on the side of my bed who pulled me up and told me that it was time to get dressed and put on my shoes and go. Um, and they, they basically dressed me for, for me, um, and put my shoes on and each one grabbed one of my arms and started walking me out my door and up the stairs towards, um, our back door. And the entire time, like, I couldn't see my dad again, and I was yelling for him, and one of them told me, your dad isn't going to respond to you anymore. He, he's not going to answer you. And I asked why and why this was happening, and they said that um, they were taking me because I didn't deserve to be with my family anymore. Um, and as I was being dragged out the door, I remember looking over my shoulder and seeing my dad standing at our kitchen sink with his back to me, just staring out the window, completely ignoring me um, while I was calling out to him. And they took me out into, they parked in my yard. That It doesn't matter, but I think it's rude that they parked in our grass. Um, and <laughs> they threw me in the car and they drove me to an airport that's an hour away and I, I've been to the airport before. I know how far away it is, but they had us driving for like two and a half hours. It wasn't until close to like 4, 4.30 that we were actually getting to the airport. And I'm genuinely not sure if they got lost or if they, that was done on purpose to confuse me. Yeah. Um, but they brought me to the first airport when, where they flew me up to Chicago and we got on a transfer flight over to Vegas When we landed in Vegas, they got a rental car and drove me up to St. George, Utah, where I went into a chiropractor's office and had a physical um, in the back room. It was very weird. um, And that was where I found out where I was going. I was handed a paper that I was told that I needed to sign. And I remember it said something about how, like, my requirements were going to be how to start a fire and dig your own latrine. And that was when I realized, like, this is some sort of camping thing. After that, I tried refusing to sign the paper for a while, um, but eventually I had to and was transferred over to my program staff, who then drove me to a little gas station outside of Hurricane, Utah. Um, where we stopped, both of them got out of the car and walked a little bit away and a therapist got into the car and like, didn't say anything to me. I immediately started crying, like begging to talk to my parents, like, just let me talk to anybody. Um, and he just said something along the lines of like, I know you're scared, but it's okay. And then wrote something down and got out. And then they drove me off to the field office and I never saw him again. Um, But at the field office, they took me up the stairs through like just where the staff hangout area is into this room that had this huge glass window that opened right into that staff office where there were staff hanging out, eating pizza and like joking around. And they brought me in there and told me that I had to strip and they did a body search. Um, All of my clothes were taken and they gave me program clothes down to even my underwear. I couldn't keep any of it. Um, They took all of my jewelry. They took everything. Um, 
And then they took me out to another truck, got me my pack. And I remember one of the staff giving me an extra bag of granola and telling me that they were sorry for everything that was happening. And then they drove me at least two hours into um, the Grand Staircase Escalante National Park before finding wherever coordinates where my group was going to be meeting. And they dropped me off on the side of a dirt road with a group of other teenage girls. (laughs) Oh, my God. I mean, were there other, like, counselors there or anything like that when they dropped you off? Or were they just out there? There were two, two staff. Um, but they were very underqualified and just young. They were young college kids who most of them wanted to go into some sort of psychology degree and had been convinced that this was, it was what needed to be done for troubled kids. And it was kind of like a tough love kind of thing. And they were young. My youngest staff was only 19 years old. So. And you were only like 16, 17? I was 16 when I was taken and I turned 17 in wilderness. That is insane. So, I mean, how did this actually happen? Did your parents, obviously I'm assuming they had to like sign off and write off on something for this. I mean, so they obviously had to know what the situation was. I mean, I just couldn't imagine. So you'd think, um, but honestly, I, I have the paperwork that they signed. I've looked through it myself and I've read all of it and It frames it in a way where it's like, yeah, accidents could happen, like they can happen at any program, but it's not going to happen here because we have all these safety measures that just don't, they don't have those types of safety measures. Um, And they basically just convince parents that we're going to be living in conditions that they're not meeting um, and make them sign away all their rights. So by the time they realize that they were lied to, it's kind of like their hands are tied. Did you ever have any contact with your parents at all? I mean, so at my program, the only contact you were allowed to have was monitored letters that would be sent out once a week. You would get monitored letters back once a week. They had to be vetted by both staff and therapist. Wow. That's insane. That's like a war crime, right? <laughs> Right. And I did have a parent visit with my parents while at Wilderness, because it's actually a requirement to have a parent visit before you ever can graduate the program. Um, So I did see them in person before I ever actually came home. And I didn't even come home. I went to an RTC right after I went to Wilderness. Um, But seeing them the first time was interesting because... Before you go to your parent visit, you are told by almost every single staff that you shouldn't waste your time trying to convince your parents that you're being mistreated out there um, because they have already been conditioned to believe that no matter what, we are just going to lie to try and get out of this program because we're spiteful that we got sent away. Mm. And um, they were right. I did try to tell my parents and they literally said to me, we know what we've been told. We know that you are going to try and lie about this, and this is what's best for you. My God. So it just it became very clear that it wasn't going to be worth it to try and fight it, and you did try to make the best of what little time you had. Man, this is insane. You know, in modern times, we call this human trafficking. <laughs> <laughs> It is actually considered a form of human trafficking known as human labor trafficking. Uh, Multiple programs have been closed due to uh, 
human trafficking problems. So. Man, that is insane. <laughs> so how long did you stay in the wilderness? So I was at wilderness for 86 days, which is about three months. Um, and then I was at my RTC in Northern Utah for another year after. I mean, were your parents allowed to come to the RTC or did they just not see you for like a year and three months? They didn't really see me a whole lot. We would have parent visits. Okay. I th- It was like three times a year or something that it was like monitored parent visits. They'd throw a whole parent weekend type deal and do a bunch of activities and like give us all the best food imaginable and make us like scrub the house completely clean before anybody showed up. Um, And so they came out and even my sisters came out for one of those um, parent weekends and got to see all of it at least three times. And then after you got to a certain phase of your program, um, you were actually able to take home passes and visit home. We, we talked about having kids and I just couldn't, I couldn't imagine this, you know, even if somebody was telling me <laughs> something, um, you know, about my story, I couldn't imagine not seeing my child for a year plus you know, maybe one or two or three times a year. That's, that's just insane. Um, you know, what sort of legal rights did the organization had? I know you said that they were sort of telling your parents what, what was going on, but like, did they basically have like a power attorney over you or like how, how, what was your legal recourse? (laughs) So, It was made aware to us when we were in the program that to even be enrolled in um, my wilderness program and my RTC, this is pretty standard for most of these types of programs, your parents have to sign over 51% of their custody to these programs. And at my RTC, I found out about a year ago that my parents did have to sign over their power of attorney over me. And like, as a mother now, I, I will never be able to understand how they miss the red flags. Like I completely understand as their daughter, why they felt desperate and why they made the decisions they did. But the blatant red flags are just what I'll never be able to get over. That's insane. I I can't, I can't imagine um, what you've had to go for. And also, I just want to say this while we're talking. Thank you so much for sharing this. I realize this could probably be something very difficult to, you know, deal with. <laughs> um, you know. It's okay. I've talked about my story long enough on TikTok that I'm kind of at a point where, like, pretty much everything's on the table. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's got to be experiences that you had um, over the course of, you know, being out in the wilderness with this. So what was, like, your first, like... I mean, obviously, first off, just the being kidnapped and being being sort of taken obviously is going to be traumatic. But what was your first time when you're out in the in the wilderness with these people where you realize like, uh oh, like this isn't even remotely what my parents thought was to expect? I found out days after I got there. So when I got to my program, there was a kid who had fallen and gotten a concussion and had been taken to the hospital once already. Um, and was just kind of told like, oh, you're just bruised really deep. Go back out and keep hiking. Um, and ended up getting to a point where they kind of started dealing with some memory loss. Um, 
And even our staff were like, they need to get help. And we're desperately trying to get a hold of the um, main office, just trying to get them to come take her. And um, I remember all of us staying awake um, throughout like the night in shifts, trying to keep an eye on her and like wake her up periodically until in the middle of the night, two staff showed up and finally took her to get a CT scan. Um, and the same thing happened to me because I ended up getting a concussion that left me with brain damage later in the program. They took her to get a CT scan and then told her, oh, nothing's wrong. You're going to go hike. Never let her see the CT scan. I don't know if they ever even let her parents know. Um, my parents didn't know how bad anything was. Um, and pretty much right then when I watched even staff being like, what are we supposed to do here was right when I knew that something was very, very wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. I mean, so, you know, even if these people have your sort of their legal guardianship or whatever, they still have to maintain your well being. I mean, don't they have to abide by like basic human rights or basic care or you'd think so. Um, and it's pretty much a situation where they just, don't follow through with stuff and say that they did. Like it is very easy for the people who actually make the decisions, the people who stay in the office and don't interact with us and don't even meet majority of us the entire time that we're out there that are the ones deciding whether or not we deserve medical care and whether or not we're lying. Um, So I had many occasions where it was staff who were trying to get kids help, who were fighting to get help. And it was just the people higher up in the program just kind of being like, no, like, I think they're lying. I have no idea what's even going on or what they look like, but I think they're lying. And then just telling parents, oh, if you got any letter saying that they got injured, they're just exaggerating it. We check them out. We have a field doctor that goes out there. The field doctor would come out like maybe every two or three weeks if we were lucky. Um, But they just tell parents like, yeah, your child is being completely taken care of and just kind of blatantly lying to them. Yeah, I was going to ask if there was any type of audit or anything like that. But if it's not like a third party audit, if it's just somebody from the company, I mean, you can you can say whatever you want. (laughs) God. Yeah, literally. Yeah. These pro that is the biggest problem with a lot of these programs is just the lack of outside oversight that makes it so much easier to keep things hidden. Yeah. Now you said this was what 20, 2017, was that right? 2017. Yep. I was taken in 2017 and didn't get out of the troubled teen industry until January 4th of 2019. Wow. So, I mean, has anything changed since then or is it still going on to this day? Still going on to this day. Both of my programs are still open and there was actually another program in Utah. Um, I believe it was Diamond Ranch Academy, actually, that just had a 15 year old girl named Taylor Goodridge um, pass away in their care from medical neglect on December 22nd. Um, there was another program that had two kids die of suicide um, in late November. They died days apart in like November 30th and November 31st. But this is something that it's been going back since like the 1960s, 1970s. I mean, this is not a new sort of style of program. I mean, 
I just, I can't, I can't imagine that it's, that it's been this bad. And so do you know what happens in an event like that when somebody passes away? I mean, and they've been telling their parents, oh, they'll they'll be fine. Don't, don't worry about what they say. So I am lucky enough to not have been at, not have had any deaths while I was in my programs. Um, but Generally, what happens is they'll try to evacuate the area and keep the kids from finding out. Um, They usually try to just completely downplay the situation and say, oh, it was just so sudden and it was an accident, especially like with um, Taylor Goodridge's case where it was blatant medical neglect that she passed away from. She was ill for a very long time and tried to get help and was just denied it completely. I just can't. I can't even wrap my head around how this can even happen now. <laughs> right. You know, like, yeah, like, like this is, I mean, this, this is something that I, I didn't even know that somebody passed away. I mean, that's, that's insane. Um, and you know, the parents like, so is there any type of like legal recourse or anything like that? I mean, they've, they've essentially killed their child. Like it, do you know anything about that case? Um, that case is actually still ongoing as far as I know. Um, but when it comes to cases like this, it is very rare that staff will be charged. It is very rare that programs will face any meaningful consequence. Um, usually they have to pay some sort of fine. And when it comes to legalities, Part of the waivers and things that parents are made to sign going in says your child could die here and you can't sue us if it happens. So it kind of just ties parents' hands so they're left to live with the guilt of the fact that they tried, they thought they were helping their child only to end up having the worst thing imaginable happen. That's, that's insane. Talk about signing a waiver, right? <laughs> Right? Literally. <laughs> Literally, one of the waivers my parents had to sign going into wilderness said, your child may die of hypothermia. I ended up getting hypothermia that I was denied medical care for and started losing consciousness from. Um, and the, my parents weren't told. Um, my program tried to cover it up. And instead of getting medical care, I was made to drink apple cider vinegar tea from my program's field leader and made to hike six miles. Like it, it is literally experiences that happen out there that they just try to cover up and sign away like, oh, this can happen, but it won't. I mean, it's, it's just so extreme. It just doesn't seem like it could be real. I mean, there's a part of me that's like, it's like, you know, really? But I mean, the fact that you just went through this whole thing, it's just, it's just so, it's so fascinating to me that this could even happen. You know what I mean? Yeah. What was your day to day like? Cause I know that you had said in one of your videos that you had things like, uh, like, be, being alone, like uh, like solitary confinement, sort of to, away from the camp, so to speak. I mean, what was your day to day like on regular? And then what was like sort of some type of punishment, I guess? Um, the solitary confinement thing was actually solo, which I will tell you about. But um, a regular day was literally just um, you wake up uh, pretty much when the sun comes up, because when you when you get to that point, you just kind of like naturally start waking up when the sun comes up. Um, you would have some breakfast around the fire. We'd do something called a morning 
Windspeak, I believe it was called, um, and like set a goal for the day, we'd wait to find out what our coordinates are to see how far we'd be hiking that day because we didn't have a main camp. We were literally just like nomadically traveling around this national park. Um, We'd find out our coordinates, make our hike that usually lasted all day, get to our camp. And because I was there in winter, we didn't have a whole lot of time to mess around before the sun set. Um, so you'd immediately set up camp and try to start a fire as fast as you could. And then once the fire was started and the camp was set up and we built our shelters and everything, um, we would sit down and we'd have dinner and do our nightly wind speak. And then we'd just hang out and talk for a little bit before going to bed. Wow. That, that was literally every day. <laughs> what was sort of the, um, the solo you were talking about? I mean, like, what was that like a disciplinary thing or like, and what would cause that disciplinary thing? So it's not a punishment. Um, while I was in both of my programs, I actually didn't receive a lot of punishments. I didn't, I just tried to do whatever I could to keep my head down and get out. I didn't try to break the rules. I just tried to mind my business. Um, and what they call a solo is like a privilege to them. It's basically a step that you have to take once you've earned enough trust to graduate the program. And it is a um, amount of days determined by your therapist, usually like two, um, where you are made to camp completely separate from the rest of the group. You have to set up your camp about a half mile-ish away. You are not allowed to talk to any of the other kids in your group. You're not supposed to talk to staff. Um, They'll bring you your or they'll bring you your meds and they'll take your shoes at night. And that's like the extent of the interaction that they have with you. And you're just supposed to camp out there by yourself. Um, and it, it is, it is supposed to be like a privilege. Your therapist would come and talk to you at the beginning of your solo and then would come and talk to you at the end. Um, and when my therapist came to talk to me on the last day of my solo, she actually decided that um, she was going to extend it one more day because there was another kid on her solo at the same time as me. And there was no way in hell that I was going to be camping alone in the middle of a national park. Like I'm not sleeping by myself alone under those conditions. So at night I would go sleep next to her in her camp and then wake up in the morning, go back to my camp and do the entire solo like I was supposed to. Um, And my therapist found out and extended it another night, despite knowing that there was going to be a snowstorm that was supposed to hit that night. And um, that snowstorm actually collapsed the the shelter at my camp, blew off our shelter at her camp um, and soaked some of my clothes and everything. Um, and that is what ended up making me go hypothermic. Oh my God. So I got hypothermia the next day. Geez. Oh, flip. So, I mean, that's like, uh, you know, so it, it was punishment though. I mean, it was disciplinary, the, the extended days. Basically, yeah. Yeah. They try to frame it as a positive thing, but it, it was basically just like, you have to do this awful, terrifying thing. If you even want to consider getting out of here. Oh my God. Like, <laughs> my God. So, um, so I mean, like, 
So when the snowstorm happened and everything like that, I mean, I've seen a snowstorm in the Midwest. It's not like a snowstorm, you know, I'm from the South. It's not like a snowstorm down here. Mm-hmm. Like, what is that? I mean, what was that like? You said you got hypothermia. I mean, did they did they offer to take you to like a an offsite or something like that during the snowstorm? Or are you just out there? No, you are out there. There were so many nights that we were caught in storms that would soak all of our gear and we'd have to stay up all night just trying to dry it. Um, But in this one, this was actually in Southern Utah. So I would not say that it was like a Midwestern snowstorm because I live in the Midwest um, and it's a lot. Um, But there was enough snow that I remember when I opened my eyes, the, all the sand was covered. I couldn't make out the sand and like the branches on the trees were frozen. It was honestly very beautiful. The conditions were different. It would have been absolutely yeah. stunning. I like how you say that. <laughs> like, oh, it would, be, it would be great. Right? <laughs> it would have. <laughs> Literally, if it was done right, it could have been a positive experience. But it was it was enough that everything was covered, um, but the temperature warmed up a bit, so the snow started to melt and everything turned into slush and just made it so we couldn't start a fire. Everything was way too soaked. All of my gear was soaked. And then it started snowing again, so it was like sleeting while there's all this slushy sand mud all over the place we can't start a fire because my tent collapsed or my shelter collapsed at my camp all of my gear was frozen my pack was frozen my sleeping bag was all of the clothes I was wearing was soaking wet um and it wasn't until I started like I got to the point where I stopped shivering. I stopped being cold. And that was when my staff were like, wait a second, this isn't supposed to be happening. Cause I was shivering and someone gave me a coat and then I took it off and was like, I'm not really cold anymore. I was just in my soaking wet sweatshirt and soaking wet pants and was just kind of like, I think I'm okay right now. I'm just going to go get my stuff packed up and just try to get all of our camp broken down so we can just get to our next site. Um, and that was when staff were like, absolutely not sit down. Um, and one staff sat me down on a pack and sat down behind me and like bear hugged me trying to warm me up. The other kids in my camp kept trying to like penguin huddle around me to warm me up. Cause I started turning like bluish purple oh and losing consciousness. Um, and it wasn't until the other staff, called the main office and was like, you need to get out here right now. There is a very big problem. You need to take her to the hospital. And um, they were told that the um, field director, whose name was Travis, was going to come out and check it out and decide if I needed to go to the hospital or not. And he came out. I remember him walking up to me and telling me that I didn't look too hot. And I told him that I didn't feel too hot either. And he was just like, yeah, I have something for you in my truck. And went and brought back this metal thermos filled with apple cider vinegar tea. And he told me that it was going to taste really bad, but that I needed to chug it to get my core body temperature back up. Um, And I chugged it. And got warmed up enough that I was like more coherent. And he asked me if I was okay. And I said, I'm cold again. And, st- and was starting to shiver again. And he said, okay, well, then you better get going because you still have a six mile hike to do. What? And we were made to 
hiked six miles. We actually ended up getting lost too. So it was much longer than six miles, <laughs> which was just salt in the wound, honestly. Yeah. I mean, the Navy SEALs don't even go through this much training. Right? I've had people comment that on my videos being like, this is comparable to when I was like training for the Yeah, Marines. it's like, what? That's, <laughs> like... That's insane. <laughs> so, I mean, so how much, I mean, was that towards the end? I mean, you've gone through this whole, like, uh, you've gone through this whole hypothermic situation. How much longer were you there after that? So that happened uh, two or three days after my 17th birthday. Um, which was January 6th. And I did not get out for at least two and a half weeks. I didn't get out until January 27th or 28th, I believe. And we were made to climb up the whites one more time because we were made to do it three times. Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, you've, you, God bless you. You've just been through so much. That's, that's <laughs> just like, that's so, that's so traumatic, you know? My lord. So it's just it's a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so after all this, I mean, what was the transition? I know you said you went for like a year to um to like an offsite. Like what was your transition like to that? Like now how how did you get out of this situation? So I actually graduated from my wilderness program. I completely I completed the entire program. I was picked up from my camp. Actually, the only way I found out that I was getting out was because our camp got a new girl dropped off the night before I got out. And the staff was like, I'm picking you up tomorrow morning. So have your stuff ready by like seven o'clock in the morning or something. They drive you like to a quarter mile of where the graduation ceremony is supposed to be. And then you get out and walk the rest of of the way with your pack to make it look like you're walking out of the wilderness. And it's just like so cheesy for no reason. And then they make you and your parents sit through this whole graduation ceremony. Um, And... Then, um, because my parents actually did pick me up and they took me to my RTC, we spent one night in a hotel where I was able to get an actual shower. Um, I was able to get some food without sand in it, um, and sleep in an actual bed for the first time in three months. And then the next morning, they drove me from Southern Utah, from Kanab, Utah, up to, um, Spanish Fork, Utah, which is where my RTC was, New Haven was. Um, and honestly, I barely remember like the first two weeks of being there. I remember being so overwhelmed just with everything. I remember crying over someone offering me a piece of cake because it was around a kid's birthday. Um, I remember having a panic attack because there was a train by my program that drove by or like whatever. And I forgot about trains. I forgot about it. So it was like the sudden huge thundering noise. And I had a panic attack over it. I remember sleeping on the floor for weeks because my bed just was not comfortable. And I, I just remember being so exhausted. I was sleeping so much. I was eating every opportunity I got. I was still kind of just in survival mode. I didn't really try to get to know anyone. I didn't really care about anything past just 
the fact that I was finally back indoors, like it was just so shocking to me. It was weird. It was a very weird transition. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I can, I can see that. It sounds like you definitely have some PTSD from this whole thing and understandably. so. Yeah. <laughs> Take this with a grain of salt, but was there, do you feel like there was any good to have come out of this whole thing? The only good things that really came out of this were I made some really awesome relationships. I'm still friends with kids that I was at both my wilderness and my RTC at to the point that one of my wilderness friends came to my wedding in November. And I'm going to be talking to someone about doing a documentary with, um, three of my other wilderness friends, potentially of us sharing our story all together of what it was like to be there together. Yeah. So the relationships were a big part of it. And honestly, like it sounds a little cliche, but like I really do find a lot of fulfillment in being able to tell my story and being able to not only let survivors know like, hey, you're not alone. I I believe you. Like I, I understand what you went through and I believe you. And to give parents alternative resources and just know that like, hey, at least from my bad experience, I can help make sure that other kids don't experience the same. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I'm glad that you have that outlook on it, you know, um, because <laughs> it sounds like you went through a lot. Yeah. You know, <laughs> just legitimate. You know, one of the things that I that I saw in one of your videos was you were talking about an organization called Synanon, um, which was, you know, I've been researching it and it looks like it was designed to be like, a a more in-depth version of Alcoholics Anonymous. But I mean, that's how how does that apply to this situation? I mean, do you do you feel like you were like reformed because of this? Mm, I definitely don't feel like I was reformed. Um but my RTC did actually utilize AA programs. They would take groups of kids to AA meetings in Provo, Utah. We would drive. Um, I, I wasn't actually there for addiction, but somehow got lumped in with this. And like, we got to go off campus. I wasn't going to say no to going yeah, off right. campus. Um, <laughs> but they would take us to these AA meetings. And um, it, it was weird because they didn't attach it to the program at all past just taking some kids there. Like it was very little addiction treatment past like small spurts of it. Um, and it, it just felt like they were only doing it because they had to in a way. And, um, just no, I don't feel like I was reformed and I don't really feel like it was effective in the way that they wanted it to be. Yeah, well, I can understand that. Um, so you said that, you know, they walked you out of the forest and you had this like sort of graduation ceremony after that. Like, what was your first meeting like with your parents after that? I mean, were you still like, you know, I can I can just like imagine that. I don't know if you saw that movie Step Brothers with Will Ferrell, but like that hug scene yes. or whatever, like, like. <laughs> <laughs> like I could, I, that's how, um, that's how I would be. I mean, what was what was that like? Like after walking out of the forest like that? I mean, um, firstly, it's hilarious you mentioned Step Brothers because there was a kid in my camp who would recite the entire movie to us, <laughs> like every. Um, 
But it was very surreal. I remember in the weeks leading up to me leaving, I knew I was supposed to be getting out at some point, like in the future. And I had told them, I remember writing a letter to them telling them that if they didn't bring me a bag of dark chocolate when they picked me up, that they might as well just leave me there. Um, so <laughs> I gave them a hug. And the first thing I asked was immediately, do you have my chocolate? Um, and they did. They had a whole bag of chocolate waiting for me in the back seat. Um, and I... It was a horrible situation and it was very emotional, but I also had a lot of fun dropping in information that I knew my parents didn't know about, like telling my parents I went hypothermic. They didn't know about that. Telling my parents some of the other things that I had to do for other kids in the camp. Like there was one kid in my camp who like a week after they brought them into the program, they were forcing them to hike up the whites to scale the whites with us. And they had severe asthma, got halfway up and they couldn't carry their pack anymore. They started having an asthma attack. And by that time it was the third time I was doing that crap. So I just hiked to the top of it, dropped my pack, went back down, grabbed theirs and hiked up and staff helped them up the rest of the way. And like for a long time, I was the only person in my camp who could start fires. So there were nights that I was literally watching my camp turn blue around me, begging me to start a fire, and I wasn't able to get it. And just like dropping tidbits of like this information into them. And I think that was the moment they really started like doubting what they did, but that they were too deep into it to really do anything else about it. It, it was just weird. I remember being shown the website um, for my RTC in the hotel room. And I remember begging my parents to just let me talk to somebody, just to call one of my friends and let them know that I'm okay. Because when I was legally kidnapped, my parents ghosted every single person that I knew. They refused to tell anyone what happened to me to the point that my best friend would show up at my house knocking on my front door and see my mom inside watching tv flat out ignoring him and they told me no and didn't let me do that and then the next day when they were driving me up i remember calling both of my sisters and my middle sister when i told her i went hypothermic she was really like what did you just say like what actually happened she was always kind of more skeptical about all of it than the rest of my family was Um, but it was just, it was a weird dynamic because I knew that they were uncomfortable with the reality of what I had been through, but they did not want to admit that they could have made such a big mistake. Yeah, I can, I can see it. I, I I don't agree with it, but I, I can, I can see where that would be their thoughts, but man, this is just, this is just a wild story. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, for something that's like supposedly supposed to be done to help your kid, um, you know, I just I I don't know how it had to be hard for them to deal with it. Have you like have you spoken to them about it? Like what's your relationship now like with your parents? Is there any resentment? So, um, <laughs> some days things a little bit. Um <laughs> I actually have a pretty good relationship with both of my parents. Um, When I first told them what happened right after I came out, 
Um, they didn't really believe it. They had bought too much into what the program was telling them and just kind of wanted to pretend that it didn't happen at all. And so I just kind of flat out ignored it until I started dealing with postpartum after having my kid and I ended up getting postpartum psychosis that was very much linked to um, my legal kidnapping trauma. And um, it wasn't until I finally got help with that and started speaking out and ended up having um, some of my pictures and my, my story being used in an international French news outlet um, that I sent them a link and was like, I know what I went through. You cannot tell me that it did not happen. I have other people backing me up. I got my records. I know what I went through. Um, and they were kind of like, okay, yeah, this is the proof that we needed to see that this was going on. Um, my dad still likes to think that there was some sort of benefit out of it because he feels that he benefited out of what he was being taught from across the country because he wasn't actually there. He was able to reap all of the benefits. Um, but he is also very, very supportive of me speaking out. I actually told him about this podcast and he's very excited oh, to listen to oh, it. <laughs> But um, he he is very supportive of me speaking out. And um, my mom also is supportive. She feels a bit more shame about it than my dad does, um, which is totally understandable. But because of that, we don't talk about it a whole lot. Um, but she also has expressed that, like, she thinks it's really cool that despite everything, like I'm still willing to speak out about all of it. So it's kind of all that I can really ask for them from them, you know, because like they were also very deeply conditioned during the entire time that I was there. And it does take time to unlearn yeah. that. And a lot of survivors do not get that at yeah. all. Yeah, well, I'm glad that you guys have that. I mean, I could 100% see where that could go completely sideways. So that's 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 really good that yeah. you guys sort of have that. You have that support system, and I, I really I, I wish you the best with that because I know that relationship could have easily been strained. Um, so that's, yeah. that's a beautiful thing. I want to talk about something that you were talking about a yeah. little bit earlier. Yes, yeah, certainly. A little earlier, you were talking about, you know, you are speaking out and you're sharing your story with other people. I mean, what can children and families like in similar situations, like what can they learn to prevent this becoming an issue? And what what do you think, if you had a message, what would that be to share with other families? So firstly, unfortunately, I think when it comes to children's mental health, it's not really an issue that can be fully prevented. But the main, like most important thing I thing I think parents can do if they do have a child who starts asking, acting out, is to just talk to them. There's a good chance that your kid is going to be dealing with something that they might not have told you about that they're really struggling with. And that's why their behavior is what it is. And if you open up that dialogue and try to give them a safe space where they know like, hey, I might not understand it, but if you're willing to talk, I'm willing to do what I can to help you and not just going behind their back to set up them getting kidnapped from yeah. their bed in the middle of the night. What I would say to someone in 
in one of these programs or in this position is just that no matter what, they cannot take your mind from you. They can try to put you through whatever they can physically, but you will always have a place in your own mind that can be your own safe haven. And that once you get out, you will have an entire community of survivors who is going to support you and who will believe you and help you find the resources that you need. You will not be alone in it. You know what's insane when I'm hearing you say that? Um, I have met with some Navy SEALs and they go through this training. It's called BUDS training. I have no experience with it, but I've just heard stories and I've talked to people about it. And that's actually the exact same thing that they say. I mean, they're out there doing like um, what's called like sugar cookies where they're like getting like sand all over their body and then going out and doing run. Oh, I've heard of that. And they run into the ocean. Yeah. The entire thing they said, everybody thinks that it's like this big physical feat to become like, you know, the elite soldier or whatever. The entire thing that they're looking for is in your head, your mental response to all this stuff. And Mm -hmm. it amazes me that what you are saying is literally the exact type of response that someone in that situation has, (laughs) has has gone through. That is interesting, actually. I mean, (laughs) It's, it's, it's really quite crazy. You know, I, I looked at a lot of your comment sections of some of your videos. Cause I just, I do the same thing. I've got a comment section myself. Mine's dramatically different than yours, but, um, you know, a lot of the, uh, a lot of the people that have commented on some of your videos, they're like, Oh, well, obviously if you're still here, the program works. I mean, what, What is your answer to that? I've come to learn on my time doing these TikToks for the last two and a half years or so, that majority of those comments are just completely to get a reaction out of you. When it comes to whether or not I'm here, I don't think that's the the big picture. Because if you look at it, over 200 kids have been killed in the troubled teen industry from the 70s to last month there is a very good possibility that I would not have been here. So when you take away life or death, you focus on the quality of life after these places. My time in the troubled teen industry left me with far worse mental health conditions than I had going in. I deal with PTSD and generalized anxiety and am a recovering agoraphobic now. And I also deal with chronic pain from injuries that I was denied medical care for. I have brain damage from the, uh, the concussion that I was given. And um, it has very much impacted my quality of life. And I'm still struggling to deal with it five years after the fact. Um, and so I think that's where it becomes important because my experience is not unique. Other people also being left with lifelong injuries and lifelong mental health problems that can lead into addiction and suicide because there are so many other people who went through the troubled teen industry who do take their lives after getting out. And it just, it's not as simple as, oh, you're just here, so it must have worked. You've just been through so much and I really applaud your outlook for this whole thing. I mean, it's easy to look at this from an outsider's perspective. I just commend you for how well you handle this. And I'm sure it's probably been a journey and a struggle to to deal with all this stuff. Yeah. You said you've got a child. You said you went through some postpartum stuff and things like that. I mean, 
what is your parenting style like now? I mean, going, having gone through something like this, you know, how, how does that affect your child? I prefer gentle parenting all the way. Um, I know a big part of the reason I ended up the way that I did was because there was no communication in my family. There was no talking about feelings with my mom and dad, even when I was three, four years old. There was none of that. I was completely just emotionally unintelligent. And that is the last thing I want for my child. And it is insane (laughs) seeing it actually working with him because I'll have times where I'm getting overwhelmed. I get overstimulated very, very easily. I have, I still have a lot of triggers and can have a lot of flashbacks. And while I, I know how to better handle them now because I've been doing it for so long, there's still some times where it gets to be a bit much. And my kid, my three-year-old will come in and try to gentle parent me. He'll tell me to take deep breaths and tell me that it's okay and ask me, are you sad, mommy? And just, it's insane. It is so crazy to me just actually seeing it in action and just knowing that like even that small step is going to make such a big difference in the way him and I were both raised. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. I, I will say, you know, as a personal commentary, my wife and I are doing the same thing with our child. And there's, there's a generational difference that I see there with like, uh, with like Gen X and things like that, where they're like, they're like, well, we didn't have that. And, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's so hard in times to often see the out, the outcome of that. And like, you kind of wonder as a parent, like, am I doing the right thing by, by handling like this? And I see the same Mm -hmm. thing in my son too. It's, it's the exact same thing. It's, it's really, it's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love I love that that's your response. I, I love that uh, that you are handling it that way. And um, yeah, I, I just I, I'm very impressed with how you um, how you've handled this whole this whole thing because I, I got to be honest, I don't know that I would I don't know that, I don't know that I would handle it that way. I would be like, okay, mom and dad, it would have been more than chocolate. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, yeah, like that's on vacation. <laughs> Yeah, it it has been a a very rough journey. And I honestly, looking back on it, I don't know how I had as much tolerance for a lot of the stuff I went through as I did. Because me now, like, no, I I cannot deal with it. I cannot put up with it. (laughs) I know that you said earlier that you were speaking out about these things and you're offering, you know, just awareness to people. So I know you wanted to talk about a website that can give more information about what's going on with the troubled teen industry. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about that situation? Yes, of course. Um, So the website I have in mind is called unsilence.org. It is the website for the Unsilenced Movement, which is a nonprofit organization that works to give survivors a voice to memorialize abusive programs, to help give parents alternative treatment options and teach parents what red flags to look for, and to further help educate not just regular day-to-day people, but also professionals like mental health professionals, 
lawyers, education consultants, people who will be involved at some point in these types of journeys about what these types of programs are and what the dangers are of them. And um, I, I honestly just think it's one of the best resources because like I mentioned, it has everything from the abusive program database to a database of survivor stories to even having a place where you can um, submit to volunteer and work with their, um, I believe it's called their speak out movement um, that works to actually get into smaller communities to help further educate about these places. Um, so it's, it's honestly just one of my favorite resources when it comes to talking about the troubled teen industry. For sure. Well, I'll make sure to put all that information down on the show notes below. And if somebody wants to find out more information about you, where can they go to find that? So you can find me on TikTok. My username is Awunasom, which is just U-W-U-N-I-S-O-M. Sorry. (laughs) I had to think about that for a second. Um, you can also find me on Instagram of, under the same username if you want to reach out or anything. Um, but my main platform is TikTok. I'm hoping to branch out to YouTube this year, though. So we'll see what happens. Bring it. <laughs> Bring it. Come on over. Well, <laughs> well, I'll make sure to put all that information down in the show notes down below so everybody can go follow you and check you out. Um, I really enjoyed talking to you. I think this is just a um, an amazing uh, journey that you've been on. And I think that your story is super inspirational and hopefully it'll help to bring some people, some families lives together. I think it's just, it's bittersweet, but it's also very wholesome as well in the end. I think it's a beautiful thing. So kudos. Thank you. Thank you. I've had a really good time talking to you and I'm excited to hear it when it comes out. (laughs) Certainly. Certainly. Well, we're getting down towards the end of the episode. And at the end of every episode, I ask all my guests, one question in two parts and they uh they're normally like a deer in the headlights because i don't tell them anything like i haven't told you anything about this entire episode but um what was the last goal that you completed and what's the next goal that you want to set for yourself so my last goal was actually marrying my husband we got married in november and um we actually got together three weeks before or three months before i was legally kidnapped and he stuck with it with me through all of it and finally his wife. Um, <laughs> but as for my next goal, um, I am an artist. I'm a painter. Um, but this past year I ended up getting really sick and just kind of lost touch with that part of my interests. And this year I'm feeling a lot better and want to get back into that. So that's my next goal. Awesome. Can I, can I find it anywhere online or is it like an in-person thing? Uh, it's mostly an in-person thing, but I'll, I'll, I'll probably be able to post some online, honestly. Yeah. Well, share it with me. Let me know. I'll, um, you know, I, it, this has been a lot of fun and I, I really, I'm looking forward to seeing what's coming from you in the future. I hope that you can share this information with a lot more people in the future. Cause I think it's something that gets massively overlooked. And like I said, when we first started talking about this thing, I'm thinking of like, Dr. Phil, like, like, you know, it's, it's, it's just not in people's heads. So I think, I think, um, I think your perspective on it is very valuable to people. And I think you should share it with more people out there. Well, thank you. I appreciate that.
Certainly. Well, thank you again for coming on the show. I'm going to go ahead and wrap this guy up. Misfits, you know where the show notes are. Go check out Beetle and her uh, her story. I think it's just really interesting and a really cool follow on TikTok. So make it happen. Thanks again for coming on the show, Beetle. Yeah, thank you for having me. I had a great time. <laughs> well, Misfits, we did it. That's our episode. As always, I want to thank you so much for listening. And thanks again to our sponsors. If you want to support any of the sponsors of this podcast, there are affiliate links on the sponsors tab of our website over at www.misfit-heroes.com. You can also find links to all of our social media there, so be sure to follow us for immediate up-to-date info about the podcast. Please, if you enjoyed this podcast and you want to help me out, do me a favor. Hit the subscribe button down below so you're notified of new episodes as they're released, and make sure to leave a rating or review of the show on Apple Podcasts and YouTube. Truly Misfits, I love you. Thank you so much for listening. And until the next episode, be kind, love one another, and be a hero.